Welcome to The Bookcase. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I am Kate Gibson. Hi, 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 hi. (laughs) (laughs) This is a continuation of our two-generational, two-gender look at books, books that we find and love. And today, we're going to get into a subject that, that really is one of the primary reasons we started this podcast. One of the things that I think is most important today is how do you get kids to read? There are so many distractions that they have. They, they you, know, you look at them, they're on their phones all the time. They've got an iPad or a computer. Their lives revolve around their digital devices. But how do you get them to move from screens to words on pages? And that's really critical. And there's a new phenomenon that really is very instrumental in getting kids to do that. Well, it's a new phenomenon that's been around for, you know, Years and years and years and years and years and years and years, which is we're, we're finally starting to take the graphic novel seriously. And I'm really excited about what Stuart Gibbs is doing, because Stuart Gibbs, as you know, is a man on a mission to get this generation to read. I mean, the man has like six different series going. They serve everything from swashbuckling to space exploration to zoology. Like he wants to hit every kid's interest at this age. And now he's turning his books into graphic novels. And graphic novels have become so prolific over the last few years. I mean, Tennessee Coates is now writing for The Black Panther. They're very serious writers who are taking shots at graphic novels because they've started to realize that graphic novels are hitting reluctant readers. They're getting reluctant readers where they live and people who weren't considering reading are now obsessive readers because some of the great literature has been translated. I think there's even a graphic novel of The Great Gatsby out now. I mean, that's how serious this industry is at this point. Well, it was comic books when I was a kid. Of course, there were the Disney comic books and whatever. I never got into the superhero comic books. I was reading things like Little Lulu and Henry (laughs) and Archie and the Disney comic books. But there was a whole series of classic comics which I read, which had transferred some of the great novels of the time to classic comics. And that was a transition to reading, which is now, as you say, manifested in graphic novels. Stewart says that he thinks that really the explosion of graphic novels, because they have been around a long time, Kate's right, the explosion has come in the last five years, and he didn't want to miss the trend. So he has new books coming out in February and in April. One is The Spy Camp, which is one of his most popular series of books, and this is Spy Camp, the graphic novel. And the other one, and this is just a tease, the other one is an actual book for young young kids. And as you will hear <laughs> when we talk to him, it has maybe the best first sentence of any book that I have ever heard about. One of the reasons I love talking to Stuart Gibbs, and he's only the second author we've talked to twice, is I, I think the perfect word to describe the way that he writes is glee. He takes so much glee in coming up with ways to get kids to read. And I don't want to say too much about the plot, but Trust me when I tell you that if you have a middle school boy or girl in your life, this will be a plot that gets them. We talk a little bit about it, but he does. He comes up with really like, I mean, he comes up with mischief and mayhem that only a middle schooler, I think, can love. And it's one of the reasons that I think he's so much fun to talk to. (laughs) The thing that really interests me in that he's transitioning from a book that he wrote and putting that book in a graphic novel form. so. 
how do you do that? You have probably a tiny percentage of the number of words that you can use in a graphic novel. How much of it is the author? How much of it is the illustrator? And what was always in my mind is that the two of them sitting side by side, writing, you know, a panel at a time. Not so, as he will tell us. No, I think that's one of the things that's really interesting is that the illustrator understands what the author was trying to do with their writing. I thought you really hit on it with Stuart Gibbs beautifully, which is in some ways, I think turning a book into a graphic novel reminds me of the conversation we have with David Kep about novels are about what people think and feel. Screenplays are about what they do and say. I think the same thing is true of graphic novels. It's how can you create a visual world that honors the vision of the writer and doesn't lose any of the humor, doesn't lose any of the beats that Stuart Gibbs is so good at providing in his writing. And I think the illustrator that they found does that really, 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 really well. So first conversation with an author turning his books into graphic novels, our second conversation with the great Stuart Gibbs. Stuart Gibbs, it's good to have you back in the bookcase. You've only published about nine books since we talked to you last. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, but you do have two new ones coming out in February and in April, one of them a graphic novel. And I want to talk to you about that. It, you have, it is the adaptation of Spy School, in this case, Spy Camp, to a graphic novel. I'm wondering, what's the difference in your mind and how do you approach them differently? Well, you know, I mean, I think it's first of all important to note that the graphic novel has just sort of exploded in popularity in the last uh, couple, really like within five years. And nobody's quite sure exactly what happened, except that it probably means that like at some point the stigma of reading a graphic novel just got erased. That people said, hey, you know what? This is just as good as reading a book. It's not cheating or something. You know, I wanted to jump into this world as quickly as possible. My publisher was up for it. And you want to tell the same story, but now you have the chance to tell it with a little bit more visual. The trick is to find an exceptionally talented artist, which uh, my publisher did, which is guy Anjan Sarkar. He's just been a fantastic collaborator. But in terms of like how I have to come to the project, it's, you know, I have to say like, okay, well, it's a little bit more visual. So I really looked at it as writing the screenplay version of the book. Mm. Kids, I think, are certainly it's proving more likely to pick up a graphic novel maybe than, than a chapter book to start out with. It's a great way to get kids who are a little reluctant to start reading. I don't know, as somebody who liked to read comics, you know, back before we called them graphic novels, uh, <laughs> like as a kid in my it's not so good. You know, I wanted to read them. And, and you know, so every once in a while, I'd save up my money and go buy myself a Batman comic and read it, you know, six or 700 times. Let me ask you about the process. So you find Anjan, and then at that point, do you submit him a script or do you sit down and you go over the novel page by page and say, these are the points we know we have to hit? These are the things maybe we could do away with because we could do it so quickly visually. Like, how do you break down the story? I think a lot of people would be probably surprised to discover how little contact Anjan and I actually have. I mean, it's be really not talking through this at all. I'm leaving a lot of this up to him. And so, I mean, I really did uh, just construct a screenplay of my book. I have a screenwriting background. So I go through the book and I pick out the dialogue that I think is absolutely the most important to save and figure out what story I'm going to tell, or, you know, what that sort of more visual way to tell the story is. And uh, just write the screenplay. And then Anjan really 
then breaks it all down and figures out what the best way to tell that story is visually. But the fact that you guys had little contact, that really, I mean, that speaks, I think, to his talent. Because when I was reading the book, I thought, oh, the illustrator really gets this book. Like at one point, Teddy's walking down the hall and the background action is kids like loading grenade launchers and practicing with grenades. And I just thought like, that's got to be like inherent. Like there has to, the illustrator either gets it or they don't kind of thing. That's absolutely imperative is finding an illustrator who's working on that level. I mean, I can maybe say like, oh, like, you know, he's walking down the hall and there's fun stuff happening in the background, but then I can really just leave it up to Aunt John to say, Oh, yeah, like this is it's one of those things I can't do in the book or, or, to the same effect. But it's fun to sort of say like, oh, no, no, this stuff's happening in the background. And now he can just illustrate that. There's an art director at my publisher, Simon Schuster, and her name is Lucy Cummins. And Lucy is incredibly talented. She she actually does the covers for Fun Jungle series and the Spy School series and also is a very wonderful picture book illustrator and has written some books on her own. And then so she is really important in not just finding the illustrators, but then she comes in and she gives notes as well. So so Anjan might send us really like storyboards, like the same sort of thing you might have for a movie where everything is, is sort of sketched out about what he thinks is going to happen. And Lucy will weigh in on all that sort of stuff, but she comes to it so visually. So she'll say like, oh, this should be like a two person panel and this should be like this. And, and my whole take on this is I look at it and think, yeah, what Lucy said. Okay. Whatever Lucy said, we talked to David Kep, who is a wonderful screenplay writer uh, and who's been responsible for some very, very popular movies. And he said, made a very interesting distinction because he's written some novels now. He said, in a novel, you write what the characters feel and think. But in a screenplay, you're concentrated on what they do and say. So do you lose something in terms of what your characters feel and think when you get translated to a graphic novel. Yeah, yeah, you do. My my screenwriting career was not quite as <laughs> as successful. You know, he had that Jurassic Park thing and some other stuff. I think my movie total earned like negative money or whatever. So, so like you always say like right, it's it they're they're two like writing a screenplay and writing a book are very different and and when you come to book writing like the ability that you can get into your character's heads and show what a character's thinking is probably like the greatest thing about writing a book because you really don't have that luxury in a screenplay. You're missing that kind of humor that might come from getting into Ben's voice, but then you're picking up the humor of those background visuals. Like one of the great things about doing this is and working with somebody as talented as, as Anjan, and it makes you laugh out loud because it's so well done. And so I feel like, like, I know it's coming and it makes me laugh. And so hopefully somebody reading is also going to have that reaction. And so you have to say like, yeah, I, I can, like, that's the kind of humor we have to go for rather than the sort of cerebral, like getting into Ben's head humor. So Lucy Cummins, if you're listening, plug your ears, because what I want to know, I've always wanted to know this, because what I would be really tempted to do is to hitchcock my way into a graphic novel. That's what I would do. I would call Anjan and I would say, can't I be the guy in the background? Blah, 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 blah. Can you get away with it? Is there anybody in the spy school or spy camp books that resembles somebody in the Gibbs family? I'm so upset with myself now for not thinking of this. Uh, maybe, maybe Lucy's done it. I don't. I mean, there's no reason why we couldn't 
it has to have that happen. Anjan did actually, like, one of the fun things is that he drew, like, our author, we don't have author photos, we have author drawings in the graphic. And so he had actually originally found this photo of me that I must have posted online at a James Bond party where I was wearing a tuxedo and holding a martini. Uh, <laughs> and so he drew that of me. And then they were sort of like, well, we probably shouldn't have an author holding a martini in a graphic aimed at kids. So he removed the martini and, and I'm holding a juice box in <laughs> like the drawing of me. That's my, my, uh, that's my suave drawing on the, on the, and so now he knows he could slip me in. Right. And so, right. I'm, I'm now we're going to, we're, we're, I'm stealing this. This is Stuart's conversation. I want to tell him a story about Christmas. My 12 year old grandson, who is your biggest fan. I teased him before we opened presents and said, I'm going to give you something that nobody has seen ever. And nobody can buy this. You will be the only 12-year-old in the country to have it. Whereupon, I gave him my advanced copy of Spy Camp, the graphic novel. And we lost him. He uh, <laughs> opened the book, and for the next two hours, that's all he did. And we would say, oh, look what, look what grandma got. Oh, yeah, fine. And then he'd go back to the book. <laughs> look what your mother got. Oh, yeah, that's fine. And then he'd go back to the book. He, he finished the book before he did anything else on Christmas Day. It is a very appealing and very seductive book. And I take your point, by the way, on graphic novels. I cut my teeth on comic books. This is, I think, a much more refined form of that. But you're right. It gets kids reading. And that's the most important thing. Thank you for sharing yes. that. It means a lot to hear a story like that. It really does. So I'm glad that he enjoyed it. Sorry that you lost him for Christmas. Yeah, I was about to say, everybody who gave him presents after that was like, I got you a car. Yeah, that's great. We talked a little bit about the importance of opening lines the last time you were here. And I want to talk about Whale Dunn's opening line, which I think may be the best opening line of a book ever. I read it and I instantly called my father I would never, the, the opening line is, I quote, I would never have seen the whale explode if a kangaroo hadn't burned down my house. Was that really the first line you wrote for this book? Um, yeah, yeah, it was. I, and I, 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 I talk to kids all the time about how don't get too hung up writing your first opening line right, because you're going to change it. But that was my... my <laughs> That was my opening line. I, I kind of have this routine now with these books where there's kind of that sort of opening line now in, in all of them. <laughs> I do enjoy writing this series quite a lot because it, it allows me to sort of create all sorts of chaos. I do get a sense that you get some glee from the exploding whale, the hippo that was dropped from a great height, I believe, in the first one. Yep. Will right. you be turning these into graphic novels? Because oh. they would be quite graphic. <laughs> Very good. Yes, yes. Um, I I would love to. I hope that that is going to happen. We are in the process at Simon Schuster of turning the Moonbase Alpha series into graphic novels, uh, and they're, they're, so there's so so those scripts have been done, and and so I feel like Fun Jungle is just primed and ready to go after this. So I will take all the graphic novel space I possibly can. But that has not been approved yet. I'm not sure you can do an exploding whale. In one panel, it might require <laughs> no, 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 that's, full, that's because that is full page. I may have to lay that at, like my one that will be like, nope, this is two page spread. 
exploding well. Yes. <laughs> but I, I have a picture or in a my head. out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have a, a, a pin out. Yeah, pull, pull out. I like that. But I have a picture of you like sitting there watching TV with your kids and all of a sudden you get a picture in your head of an exploding whale or a hippo dropping from a great height. And all of a sudden you've got a giggle fit and you're like, I'm going to write a book about this. I mean, how I mean, is it the visual that comes first and you're like, this is going to be too fun? I mean, how does that work for you? Those two explosions came in very different because the hippo, I did not know until I was. I'd already outlined the book and everything, and I was well into it when suddenly I had the vision of the, <laughs> of the hip, and I and I was like, oh my gosh, that has, to, you know, that was a banner day. Uh, you know, I'm sure Jane Austen had days like that, or or Shakespeare, or that. <laughs> like, oh yes, yes, this is right. I'm changing everything. We need this to happen. The idea for Well Done, though, was. Usually I don't take ideas from readers, but so many kids were saying, can you please write something about whales or dolphins or some kind of marine animal? I thought, okay, well, I, I've got to look into this. And I, I recalled the great eminent journalist, uh, Dave Barry, having <laughs> written a piece that I had read many years before about a dead whale that had washed up on the Oregon coast. It was left to the Oregon Highway Department to <laughs> figure out what to do with the whale. And I went back and I had to track down this Dave Barry piece. And he pointed out that obviously they gave it to the highway department because whales and highways are both large items. And But it turned out actually that he was writing about something. He wrote this piece in the 80s because somebody had sent him a videotape of it. And it had actually happened in like 1971. And they had sent the news crews out. And then I found this on YouTube, right? That they sent the news crews out to like say, oh, they're going to blow up a whale. And nobody was like, oh, maybe this will go horribly wrong. <sighs> and it did. And so... Wait, they actually blew it up. They actually put like dynamite in a whale and blew it up. But, yeah, right. Like we got this isn't this, this isn't proven to go badly by say like Wiley Coyote didn't prove that this would be a bad idea <laughs> nothing like that. No, I can see the first page you should have had in the frontispiece. It should be based <laughs> on true story. based on a real well, fact. Well, this just happened someplace. So I will admit, like I did not come up with the idea of somebody blowing up a whale. We let a government agency came up with that, of course, and notified the press, and the press showed up, you know, to film it. And it's not a great video from the seventies, but you just see it happened. And so, what I did bring to this was, I thought, okay, well, that was blowing this whale up on a remote beach in Oregon. If I really want this to be funny, I should blow it up in Malibu, California, in front of the most <laughs> exclusive real estate in the country. You know, blow it up in front of several $40 million homes and see what happens. What I find commendable, though, you still get in lessons for the kids. These are kids' books. They're fun. Exploding whales are certainly appealing to the imagination. But I just noted there's a whole explanation of countershading in uh, sea animals. You talk about how humans are harming the oceans with, I think, a very good lesson on that score. And then the one that surprised me, the importance of sand. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize uh, how omnipresent sand is in my life. And you talked about how important it is, for instance, in making concrete. Having good sand in concrete, is if you don't have it, it's the difference between building a pyramid out of Legos and building a pyramid out of ping pong balls. I thought that was a very good contrast. Yeah, well, that came because I had been at a book festival in Tucson where they I was doing my stuff, and then they have a science tent. And I went down to the science tent to see whether, and there was a journalist named Vincent Beiser who had just written 
a book about how, in a sense, we were running out of sand on Earth. And it, I was just like, I, I kind of had that reaction, like, wait, like, how is that possible that we could run out of sand? And so I, I bought the book and I was just like, really for years thinking, there's a story in this. It seems like the most ridiculous crime ever, but it's actually taps into such an important thing. And not so much happening in this country, but in places like India and Africa, where people are, people, huge companies are coming and stealing the sand out of riverbeds and destroying communities. And then people are honestly, on occasion, getting killed over that, you know, so you hear about something like this and think that sounds bizarre, but uh, it's an, you know, it's an interesting environmental mystery. The last time you were here, I wanted to end with, because the last time you were here, I asked you about how your readers were doing. We're coming out of such a dark period and it's been really strange for kids. And you said it's probably a little too early to tell. How do you think your readers are doing? Uh, you know, probably the most important thing is kids are going back to school and they're getting that socialization back. And we do have a lot of kids who missed, you know, a year to two years of socialization. And first, I guess you've got to say thank you to all the teachers out there. who This has been incredibly difficult on them mm -hmm. and they are sort of having to really do a lot of socialization work and stuff like that with these kids. But I do get the sense that this is good. Kids are seeing their friends again. They're getting to have assemblies again. They're getting to, it's not just me going to schools. There's plenty of other authors going to schools and back to sports and extracurriculars and stuff like that. Certainly, I think going to be some repercussions of this, but hopefully they'll, you know, as time goes on, everybody's going to recover. And I think you can see that there, there is kind of a, I see my own kids just like this joy of, oh, I'm back with my friends able to socialize with them. And that's such an incredible part of, I, I'm not, I'm not professional in this, but you could argue that that's, you know, we're learning, like that's more of what school is about than, than even what you're, you're learning is like this socialization and making friends and learning how to interact with people. There's another thing that I worked on, but it's an anthology called Hope Wins that was actually put together by Rose Brock, who was the professor that I mentioned earlier, recognizing that we go through times when kids can really sort of lose hope and such. So she, so she there's a, this was sort of the follow up. There, there was a YA version of this book called Hope Nation. And then over the pandemic, we sort of put together this book, Hope Wins, that's me and just this amazing array of fantastic middle grade writers like Christina Suntornvad and Sarah Malinowski and, and James Ponty and Gordon Corman. And, and we even got R.L. Stein and Max Brallier, who does uh, Last Kids on Earth. And it's all these sort of stories of people overcoming. One, sometimes it's a big tragedy. Sometimes it's a small thing in lives. I actually wrote about the, the death of my own wife, but wrote like a list of things that I hope could help kids get through a tragedy in, in their lives. And, it, you know, it, it's, I think it's, you know, it's an important book. And we hear from a lot of schools that they've been letting the kids read it and that they've really found it to be tremendously helpful to the kids. I mean, there's, there's everything, there's a lot of heavy stuff, but, but for the most part, everybody then still finds a way to make it sort of light and interesting as well. You know, I'm going to pick it up because I would say like one of the really challenging things over the last few years has been apparent, breaking down things that are terrifying into as small a bite-sized pieces as you can and still tell the truth. That's been hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I will look at that book. And the other thing is that the kids, you know, it, they're going through all these experiences for the first time. Yeah. And they don't know about resiliency. They haven't seen examples of 
of how you just get through it. Sounds like a terrific book. How long has it been out? I think it came out last year. Well, Stuart Gibbs, it's good to have you back with us. Stuart Gibbs, one of the most prolific authors, I think, anywhere. I don't mean to say he's prolific, but if you go into the young people section of any bookstore, basically there'll be one whole bookcase <laughs> devoted to Gibbs, <laughs> to Gibbs books. A great pleasure, Stuart. Thanks. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Stuart Gibbs, rapid fire questions. Is there a lesser known book that you recommend? Oh, uh, a lesser known book for kids? Yep. I, as a kid, loved a book called The Last of the Really Great Wang Doodles that, of all things, <laughs> is written by Julie Andrews, <laughs> who, who yeah. had uh, she'd been kind of successful as an actor. I didn't even realize that she was the same person who'd written, but I just loved this book. Uh, as a kid. Author you will read simply because they wrote it. Uh, Carl Hyacin, for sure. Man, I am going deep on Anthony Horowitz right now, who also wrote just, he did write this other spy series for kids, but oh my gosh, is he an amazing mystery writer. If I were not a writer, I would be... I would be a field biologist, I think. I'd be off in South America studying capybaras. Biggest literary influence in your life. Actually, I would say that Michael Crichton is my biggest literary influence because he was the guy who showed me that you could combine science and adventure and actually like have people learn while they're reading, but also create just these amazing adventures that were just absolute page turners. Favorite place to read? I have a, a big puffy chair in my bedroom and I like to, it's also my dog's favorite place to sleep. So I have to. They oust him out of there and, and get in and say, no, it's reading time. And the last suggestion you got from your kids as to what you ought to write about, what would they like you to write about that you haven't written about yet? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> my son is a big World War II aficionado. And there is the idea maybe of like going back and doing some kind of spy school prequel in World War II or, or something. 
like that at some point. There's so many great uh, spy stories from that from that war, which again gets into the like. No matter how bizarre I can come up with a, an idea, somebody did something even more bizarre in real life. And World War II is full of those stories. Stuart Gibbs, great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Stuart Gibbs, very interesting as always. One of the things that he wanted to add is a project that he worked on that's been out for about a year that I know intrigued you when he mentioned it. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't read to read it. Hope wins, which I think, I, I don't know. I, I'm a mom. And I think the recovery that kids are going to go through over these last few years is going to be long. And I think in some ways we may not see the effects of these last few years until they're teenagers. But I think Stuart Gibbs and the other writers that he talked about did something that's very brave, which is try to speak directly to kids about optimism, about hope. It's been pretty difficult to hold on to both of those things in the last few years. As a parent, I feel like a big part of my job has been to break huge adult concepts into smaller bite-sized pieces so my kids can absorb them and swallow them. The pandemic, institutional racism, unconscious bias, protests, the riots, it's been a hell of a year for parents to explain things to their kids. And I'm so glad that there are writers out there who are doing things to help speak to the kids. It's going to take a village to get kids to recover from the last few years. Well, I'm interested in the way he talked about it in not just dealing with the pandemic, and you're absolutely right, but how to deal with hard times in so many different guises. And the fact that he wrote about the death of his own wife, mm. I haven't seen the book yet. I'm interested to see it. Hope Wins is the name of it. And it sounds like it's very important, as is the Spy Camp, the graphic novel, which is designed to get kids reading. And that is so, so important. So Stuart Gibbs, who has a wonderful sense of humor, which is always reflected in his books, but also has a sense of social issues, which are addressed in sort of sideways in his books. But he always gets something. I talking, for instance, about the shortage of sand in the world. I, I never, <laughs> yes. who, who thought of that? I didn't know that. And in some of his <laughs> other books, he addresses problems like climate change and whatever. So he had both humor, he had their teaching lessons. In some of his books, there are vocabulary lessons. He's a very thoughtful as well as a very humorous writer. And as you pointed out, he has about 726,415 books in print. <laughs> and when you go into a to a bookstore, there'll be there'll be sort of a a Stuart Gibbs uh, whole bookcase there. So there's I, a wall, a, a wall, right? So <laughs> See, he good gets to a talk wall. to him. Our our bookstore <laughs> this week is a bookstore in Montgomery, Alabama. Reed Herring is the name of it book, or Red Herring, R E A D Herring. But they're soon to change the name of the bookstore. Uh, to the New South Bookstore in Montgomery, Alabama. And we talked to Mike Breen, who is one of the managers of the store. And then joining us as we talked was Suzanne LaRosa, who is the owner of the store. Our conversation with the folks from Reed or Red Herring. Let's start out by telling our readers about the vital importance of your historic location. Oh, yeah. We are located right in the heart of downtown Montgomery. So pretty much... We are right here in the civil rights capital of the world, to my, in my opinion. So if you look to our left, you see there's the Freedom Rides Museum. If you walk right up the street, like literally a block away, 
we actually have the uh, Rosa Parks Museum. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Miss Suzanne LaRosa is actually the owner of the business. Just as a quick introduction, she is the owner of the building, the owner of the business, and she is the big, big boss. Oh, silly, <laughs> silly. No, I'm a co-founder. We owned a publishing company, which we just sold to the University of Georgia Press called New South Books. And Red Herring is an offshoot of our publishing company and makes accessible books on the topics we published on and which, if you will allow us, express our progressive values. I don't want to correct the owner of the store, but you just said red herring, which I've been saying a couple of times. It's reed herring. Yeah, it is. It is red herring, just well, like the term. <laughs> just, to, just to complicate things further, with the sale of our publishing company to the University of Georgia Press, we are investing our resources in growing the bookstore. So by March 1, we will have doubled the space and doubled the number of titles in the store. And mm -hmm. to the point about the name of the store, we are about to change the name from Reed Herring to the New South Bookstore. Ah. We used to long ago, I'm talking about 20 years ago, when we first opened the store, we called it the New South Bookstore, and people were confused about whether we were publishers or booksellers, and of course, we were both. So we made the decision to change the bookstore name to help people do understand that we had an active, vibrant bookstore, but it didn't actually catch on and people struggled with it and always throughout these years wanted to call it the New South Bookstore. So we're giving in to popular demand and we're just reverting the name to the New South Bookstore. Effective March 1. And going back to your roots, uh, we were talking to Mike just a moment ago Yes. about the fact that Montgomery obviously is such a center for the civil rights movement, but it is also a center for the civil war many, many years ago. How do you balance that in your, in your collection and curating your books? I think that we recognize that the civil rights history is very tied to the civil war history. And to be honest with you, when we speak about our Deep South history, we talk about our Native American history because it was only the evacuation of the Creek Indians with the Battle of Horseshoe Bend in 1814 that opened up this area for settlement. It's a very tragic, tragic story. So you cannot really talk about one without talking about the other. And our bookstore, even though it's not greatly expansive, we try to give shelf space to titles that address all aspects of that history. So we have Native American titles. We have a very solid Civil War and Reconstruction sections in our bookstore. And then as Mike pointed out, we have Jim Crow history and then moving right on to Civil War history. And we have a real depth in our collections on all those topics. I hear or I have read, actually, that in some ways there are historical markers in your building, that there is a special couch and that even the bathroom has some Jim Crow significance. I wonder if you could talk about that. Yes, because we have three bathrooms. We have three bathrooms and there is prominent signage on the way down to the bathrooms that explains why we have three bathrooms. And the third bathroom, which is functional and is pr 
appropriately marked describes the terrible Jim Crow history during which time this office at the time was opened. And the couch, the special couch is one that I personally rescued. There's a funny little story. My partner in the business, Randall Williams, it was a very close friend of a woman named Johnny Carr, whose couch this belonged to. And Johnny Carr, Mrs. Carr, as we called her, was a real firebrand. And she had been a close friend of Rosa Parks. And uh, she was a founding member of the local MIA, the Montgomery Improvement Association. Anyway, long story short, one day she called up and she said, is Randall there? And I said, yes, Mrs. Carr. I said, he's upstairs, but how can I help you? Well, I'm finally redecorating, she said. And he has a truck, right? I said, yes, Mrs. Carr, he has a truck. She said, well, I need him to come over here and pull away that old couch that's been in my living room and carry it to the dump. And I said, oh, you're giving away your couch, are you? And I said, we'll be right over. And we saved the couch because on that very sofa have seated the great Ralph Abernathy, Edie Nixon, Reverend King himself, certainly Mrs. Parks, and all the luminaries of the civil rights movement whom you know by name. So we put out a sign and when tour groups come into the store, I purse and when I'm down in the store, I'll say, put your fanny on that couch. Because your fanny is sitting on the very sofa that Ralph Abernathy sat on some years back. You talked about the importance of the history of the area and how interwoven it is into the veins, the very veins of your store. What local writers, because I know that's also a big part of what you guys, of your mission, what, what local writers really excite you? In Birmingham, and I, I guess I consider Birmingham, I, you know, Alabama is rich in good writers, but in Birmingham, there's a woman who's a poet and a writer of material for children named Irene Latham. And Irene has many published books to her name. And in fact, we published her at New South Books once in a, a work called uh, Leaving G's Bend which was a novel, a young adult novel. And Irene is a real talent. We have Alabama's former poet laureate, uh, Jennifer Horn, also, again, one, some time ago published by New South Books, but Jennifer Horn is in Tuscaloosa, and she is a poet and a champion of poets and still active. She's written memoirs, a couple of memoirs, and a number of collections of poetry. She's a really bright light here. We have a gentleman here who's written a number of short story collections and recently a novel called Children, Children of, Dust. of Dust. Thank you, Mike. And his name is Marlon Bart. His middle name is Bart, goes by Bart Barton. And he is fine talent. And then we have another gentleman who's on faculty at Troy University, who's a personal friend, Kirk Kernot. Dr. Kernot is a writer of considerable talent. On your website, you mentioned that when New South Publishing started in 2000, Montgomery was pretty much a ghost town. Was it really? And what's changed? It was a ghost town. I came when I first moved to Alabama, a good number more boarded up buildings than not in downtown Montgomery. 
after years of white flight. So what happened is the civil rights battles that resulted in the lawsuits like Brown v. Board of Ed in 1954 and the Voting Rights Act. And as I understand it, there was great pushback to those new laws and to the changes that were finally a coming, as they say in the song. And the downtown, which had been a vibrant business district. A lot of businesses moved out as the city became increasingly black. And when we purchased this building in 2000 to house our publishing offices, one of the reasons we could purchase is it, the price was quite low because nobody, nobody was moving downtown. And people who knew us thought, are you crazy? Like, what kind of business are you going to do downtown? You know, it was very, very quiet. The city hadn't realized the potential in its tourism. And in a way, we have Brian Stevenson, since you mentioned him earlier, to thank for driving awareness of the value of the civil rights history and the value of telling that history honestly. But in the last 10 years, there has been increased tourism coming to Montgomery and of course, the opening of the EJI's National Memorial and the Slavery Museum, which was, you know, a Stevenson project, have changed the landscape down here. And the city, to its credit, finally got behind those initiatives and said, okay, you know, maybe we do have a big, important story to tell that people want to hear about it instead of just sort of, you know, being ashamed about it or not talking about it at all. So slowly the dynamics of the city changed. And as Mike will tell you, we see tourists in the store all the time. Let me ask one more question of Suzanne before we go, because you sound like you read everything under the sun. So I'm always fascinated by people who read everything under the sun. What was your favorite book of 2022, if you had to pick just one? I'll tell you one I'm reading right now, which I found in our bookstore, <laughs> um, which has really sparked, uh, sparked me. I found a 1972 edition of Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver, which I knew his name. I know a little bit about his history. I picked it up and I read the first couple of pages and the prose is fabulous. It's muscular. It's simple. It's honest. It's so honest. And the way he, and he's writing from a, a prison. He's writing, he's in a federal prison, I believe, for many years. And boy, has he got a voice. And he's talking about women and how black women, black men view white women. And he's just going into some dangerous territory. And it is a fabulous book. And how about you, Mike? Your favorite book from the list? Oh, goodness. One big thing you've got to know about me is I'm a huge horror buff. <laughs> yes. Anything horror related, I love it. Yes, yes, I see you agree. For me, I ended up stumbling into the author named Nick Cutter. I had never heard of his work before. I heard of The Troop first, glanced at it, thought it might be up my alley, but I stumbled into The Deep. It has been years since I have found a book that has made me reread it multiple times. I have reread The Deep three times in 2022, and it is on my to-read-again list 
for 2023. So Suzanne LaRosa, Mike Breen, thanks very much for talking to us. And people, I'm not sure where to tell them to go. They can go to Reed Herring or Red Herring or the New South Bookstore. It will be found on Court Street in downtown Montgomery, Alabama, a center for history and a center for books. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Our conversation with Mike and Suzanne at Reed Herring, soon to be New South Books. I guess Reed Herring is their red herring of a name. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Um, Yeah. Uh, So I wanted to, one of the reasons that I love talking to Reed Herring was I, uh, Mike Breen, as it turns out during our conversation, it came out as you heard that he is a fan of horror. And I'm really, really excited because Now ABC Audio trusts me enough to let me program a whole month on my own of a genre of my choice. And I am going to drag my father through the genre of horror. I'll be on vacation. Um, I'm really excited. I'll I'll be on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) I think there are so many great things to talk about with horror literature. For one thing, I think horror does an amazing job of mirroring what America is frightened of at the time, which I always think is an interesting discussion. I think the role of gore in horror literature is really an interesting discussion. So I'm looking forward to all of, to one, making my father read all these books, and two, having all these incredible conversations with authors that I've admired for a long time. It's easy for me to picture in a movie what will scare you. In a book, I think it's harder. It's in print. You're sitting in your own living room or your own you know, bedroom or whatever and reading and So there's familiar things around you and you know that it's not real. So how is it harder for an author, for instance, to scare you in a book than it is for a director in a movie to do it? It's an interesting conversation we'll have in June. But as she alluded to, Katie has brought me kicking and screaming into this idea of a month on horror novels. But she has some very good thoughts on them. And a little later, we'll do a a month on biography, which is a subject that interests me, and we will be doing that. Anyway, as always, we want to remind you of those who make this possible. We didn't get a coda from Stuart Gibbs this time, so we're going to get a coda from my grandson, Kate's nephew, Lang Rosen, who lives in Seattle, and Stuart Gibbs is his favorite author. So we asked him to give us some thoughts that would take us off the air. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. Hi, this is Charlie's grandson and Kate's nephew, Lang. I'm 12 years old. And Stuart Gibbs is my favorite author because he brings humor and mystery into his books with a clear and detailed plot line. Although I like them all, my favorite has to be a spy school series because each book has different unpredictable twists and turns. When I sit down with one of his books, I know it's going to be a fun ride from cover to cover. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? 
In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.